This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. As always, we're taking a little detour, looking at Kohlberg's levels of moral reasoning and how we can address morality, moral behavior in our schools. We can and we must. Now, we're looking at Kohlberg's theory. Remember, a theory is a way to explain a set of facts. No theory is totally right or totally wrong. Theories help us understand human behavior. They don't predict human behavior. Now, in 1984, Larry Lawrence Kohlberg, his research, he conducted research that was focused not on moral behaviors, but on the subject's reasoning behind their behaviors. From this, he developed his theory of moral development. This theory describes six stages of moral reasoning at three different levels. Let's look at the pre-conventional level first. And there are two stages here, two stages, and these are described as pre-conventional levels of moral reasoning. Here, right and wrong are based primarily on external circumstances, punishments and rewards. So stage one is called punishment. This is the very lowest stage of moral reasoning. Here, your behavior is guided primarily by the need to avoid punishment. You're motivated to act not by what is right and good, by what will, by, but by what will enable you to avoid some unpleasant condition. Here, morality is under external control. However, when the threat of punishment disappears, the behavior reappears. This is true whether you're dealing with rats in a skitter cage or human beings in a classroom. So, level one is very limited and low. Level or stage one. Stage two is called rewards. At this stage of moral reasoning, your behavior is determined primarily by, by what will earn you a reward. You're motivated to act based on what will get you something you desire. Morality here is also under external control. When the external rewards are extinguished, any behaviors that were learned or displayed are extinguished as well. Now, an analysis of this. This might help us sometimes understand the motivation for students' behavior in the classroom. For example, when a negative behavior is displayed, we should ask ourselves, why is the student doing this? What reward does the student hope to gain? What punishment or negative consequence is the student trying to avoid? As well, the motivation behind a negative behavior often isn't conscious to the individual acting out, especially children. Meaning a negative behavior in one place could be an actual healthy response to a negative experience in another. For example, if children are experiencing trauma or abuse at home or they were uh, uh, ridiculed on the bus, they may display negative behaviors at school. In terms of using rewards and punishments for behavior management, any plan that's based solely on rewards and punishments will be limited. You may see some short-term changes, but when the external reward or punishment is diminished, the behavior returns. Now, this isn't to imply that behavioral strategies shouldn't be used in a school, but they should be used with other things, including a healthy relationship with the teacher and friends. As an example, 
When I was teaching second grade, Tim was one of my students. Tim had a hard time with his behavior in class, and he frequently got in trouble on the playground. So I put Tim on a contingency contract. He'd get a smiley face, a straight face, or a frowny face on his contract four times a day based on his behavior. How's it going, Tim, I'd say. How was your recess? At the end of the week, he'd take his contract down to the counselor or principal and share. Good things or bad. His parents also looked for the contract every Friday. Now, this contract was successful because it helped Tim focus on his behavior issues during the day and held him accountable. However, the power of this contract was in the relationship. Four times a day, I would have a short, meaningful interaction with him. And every Friday, he would get to share his success or lack with a counselor or principal. The contingency contract, along with the human interaction, is what made this approach to behavior management successful. After three weeks, he needed no contract. So let's look at the conventional level. The next two stages are at the conventional level. Here, there are internal standards involved in determining right and wrong, but there's little reflection or personalizing of these standards. So there are standards, but very little reflection or personalizing. So stage three is social approval. This is sometimes called the good boy, good girl stage of moral reasoning. At this stage, moral reasoning, your at this stage of moral reasoning, your behavior is guided by that which is approved by others or by social conformity. That which is approved by the dominant social group is the final authority on all questions, on all moral questions. Morality here is still under external control. This stage of moral reasoning is prevalent in middle school and high school when belonging to or being approved by the group is important. Being a part of a group Any group at any stage at any level can provide people with a sense of identity, safety, and belonging. However, the danger is when people become dependent on the group for the development of a belief system and a sense of right or wrong. Belief systems and moral reasoning at the group level are more often aimed at conformity and allegiance. Stage four is the law. Behaviors at this stage of moral reasoning are guided by laws and rules of society, culture, institution, or religious order. In all moral questions, the law or rule is the final say, the ultimate authority. Morality here is still externally dependent because autonomous thought is conceded to the law. There are interpretations of the law, but in its purest form, computers could answer the great moral questions of the day. Behaviors either do or do not fall within certain parameters. One of the dangers with moral reasoning at this stage is that the law can be used as an excuse in wrongdoing or a lack of response. It can also be used to shed responsibility for evil or destructive behavior. We were just following orders, they say. And of course, what is legal and what is moral are often different things. 
For example, segregation based on race was once legal. So an analysis of this level. This is called the conventional level for good reason. It's the level at which most people tend to operate most of the time. However, nobody operates at any one level exclusively, and every human being uses lower levels of moral reasoning at times. For example, most people would like to drive faster than the speed limit, but they don't because they fear getting a ticket. So this is stage one moral reasoning being used to guide behavior. In the classroom, you can help students examine their stage three moral reasoning, the social approval, by presenting models of very accomplished people who are not afraid to challenge social rules and norms. Lady Gaga is an artist I admire, and she comes to mind right here. You can also ask students to do fine to define their own set of classroom rules. Now, rules should always be stated in the positive, the behavior that you want to see, and you should always ask students to explain why the rule is important. And finally, ask students to develop their own set of standards for ethical behavior, both in school and out of school. This invites them to examine current rules and norms, and in doing these types of activities, the product students come up with is not nearly as important as the process used to develop norms and values. You get to hear the thinking of others. For example, in high school, you might ask students to develop an ethical guide to dating. Having both single gender groups and mixed gender groups would expose students to a variety of thinking and ideas. And this is based on the Vygotskyan idea that we develop our moral reasoning from outside in, meaning hearing the thoughts and reasoning of others enables us to internalize some of these thought patterns. So let's look at level three or the post-conventional autonomous or principled level. This is the level of moral reasoning beyond that of conventional moral reasoning. At this level, we see the beginning of autonomous thought. So, stage five is social contract. At this stage of moral reasoning, your behaviors are guided by the preservation of social order. Here, you may disagree with some of the rules and laws, but you know that they're necessary for an orderly and just society. You understand that rules and laws are created based on what is perceived to be the greatest good for the greatest number of people at a particular time and place. However, situations often change, and as such, rules and laws need to evolve. People operating at this stage are often willing to adhere to the law in order to preserve social order, However, they're also willing to seek change when necessary. And when seeking change, they tend to work within the system. That's stage five. Stage six is universal principle. This is the highest stage of moral reasoning. Here, you realize that truth is the final reality. Right action is determined by your conscience in accordance with a set of universal principles, regardless of the consequence. These principles 
are generally those that accord honor, dignity, and worth to all humans, plant life, animal life, and ecosystems. You're willing to work within the system, society, or institution, but you often find you have to you have to work outside the system if you're going to get the necessary changes. People operating at this level are willing to question or challenge the status quo. They confront injustice, moral hypocrisy, double standards, discrimination, and inequity. Now, very few people operate consistently at this level. However, those who do are often not tolerated by the systems or institutions in which they operate. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Abraham Lincoln, Gandhi, Muhammad Ali, Jesus are some of the examples of people operating at stage six. Now, an analysis of this. As irritating as they can sometimes be, people willing to operate at post-conventional levels are necessary for a healthy democracy, society, business, religious organization, school, or classroom. They're essential for a healthy, for healthy social evolution. Now, we're most comfortable with stage five behaviors when they align with our own views, of course. We're a bit less comfortable with people operating at stage six. These people here are often willing to operate outside the system. However, people who are truly operating at this level of, at this stage of moral reasoning never resort to violence, destruction, personal attacks, propaganda, control, or domination. Now, school activities at this level are most developmentally appropriate at the middle and high school levels, but they can be adopted for lower levels. Here, you'd ask students to take on real issues to promote real-life change both at school and in the community. They would include projects aimed at addressing issues such as social justice, systemic racism, poverty, the school-to-prison pipeline, climate change, mental health, LGBTQ rights, disability rights, and other issues. All right, we've looked at Kohlberg's six stages of moral reasoning. Number one, right and wrong is determined by a punishment, avoiding punishment. Stage two, earning a reward. Stage three, right and wrong, uh, social approval. Stage four, right and wrong, determined by a law. Stage five, right and wrong determined by social contract. And stage six, universal principle.